Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them, and... Sarah, she, her. Yes. Sarah, thank you for making time out of your busy schedule to be here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Now, if you need to duck out... For unexplained reasons, perhaps after hearing some sort of catastrophic news playing in the background, we will understand. Okay, perfect. You, you've kind of stepped above and beyond um, other fans already because usually I have to contact people and I like offer a few different options of fanfics and, you know, list how long they are and say a little bit about them and ask them which one they might be interested in talking about. I think this might be the first time when the guest did that for me. And it came up with a short list of fanfics to do. Oh, man, Amato, uh, I was excited to talk about Smallville fanfiction. I kind of mentioned, um, you know, I'm coming to this fandom. I got excited about this fandom um, just this past year. And so uh, I've been really wanting to talk about this great fanfiction. But unfortunately, most of the fandom has been through it all and has now (laughs) moved on after uh, 10 or 20 years. And so I'm very excited to talk to you today. <laughs> so yeah, I already had a little short list in my head. I'm glad you're bringing that new fandom energy. And yeah, I was a little worried because when I was looking over your show, I saw that you talked about, like, you talked about Smallville with people several times. And I was, I was worried that maybe you'd talked it out and would no longer have the enthusiasm. <laughs> no, I am. Um, yeah, Amato. I'm. I'm just like knee deep. I mean, I'm just all about it right now. So you've caught me at a good time. Like, well, as a fan, Amato, you should probably understand how fans are about their fandom. But actually, to be fair, sometimes we have people who are sort of like eh about whatever we're reading. So it's it's actually exciting to have that energy. You know, someone who's really into it. Yeah, just because people are into the franchise doesn't always mean they get psyched about reading a random piece of fan fiction mm-hmm. about it. True. Yeah, do you guys... Uh, I've listened to a few episodes, but not all of them. Um, do you usually get... Or how often do you get people that are into the fandom, but not necessarily into fan fiction? These days, rarely, I would say. Um, I feel like these days... <laughs> I've been just going through the rounds of inviting all the people who we are mutuals with on Twitter who run fanfiction <laughs> podcasts. So that's, you know, I haven't run out yet. And that's usually a pretty good selection of people who want to talk about a fanfic. Yeah. And I didn't really, I don't know how often or how common this fanfiction podcast thing has been because I just started mine just about a year ago. Uh, and there were a few, but it seems like there's more now, which is exciting that people are, are getting the same idea. Yeah, my impression is that, you know, four years back or so, there were several fanfiction podcasts that were mostly reading bad or goofy stuff and kind of making it a humor thing. And they didn't all have, you know, negative vibes going on. Like, I'm Fanatical Fix and Where to Find Them is a very joyous show. But they're reading, like, you know, weird Harry Potter fanfiction and, you know, laughing about it there. And I feel like there's been an upswing of, podcasts that really want to celebrate fan fiction or take it kind of seriously as literature yeah it felt like we were kind of like the first one on the scene to do that at the time maybe not the first but like kind of stepping into a new category 
And of course, we made it super niche because we have to have old fan fiction from like 2007 or before. Because I don't know, Amato's ideas are weird. Well, yeah, at the time, my reasoning was that for one thing, I didn't want to read current fan fiction and make it a thing with these <laughs> authors that were still active and like, you know, criticize their fanfic that they just wrote like six months ago or whatever. And also, I was into fan fiction, you know, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And so there were all these things I wanted to read. So I just like narrowed the scope so that we could read those old anime fanfics that I wanted to do. But then, of course, we've we've broadened the scope of series and, you know, source materials. And now, um, well, you know, I still appreciate having that narrower scope just because it's already so hard to like decide what fan fiction to do that I don't need those extra 15 or 16 years of fan fiction mucking it up. Yeah, and I think that's a cool scope to have because I've just been doing stuff that I'm into, which has resulted in like 10 episodes of Cobra Kai and then now just a couple episodes of Smallville. Um, but the Smallville authors are definitely harder to find. A lot of them aren't writing Smallville anymore. Um, but I don't know. I thought the the retro uh, niche was actually really cool. And I don't think anyone's going to swipe that from you. And it's something that <laughs> I don't I feel like the body of works grow as we like, you know, in a couple more years, you can sort of move up the ticker of like, where retro fix starts. So it's not like it's like a static right. body of work. Yeah, we've actually yeah. sort of been doing that because we started in 2018. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I think yeah. you guys are the yeah. OGs. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're certainly the only ones doing book club podcasts for old fan fiction. And like you said, I think we're going to stay that way because it's not hot real estate. Um, <laughs> but. You know, you've mentioned that you just recently got into Smallville. Before we start talking about our specific retro fan fiction for today, could you, Sarah, describe for us how you got into Smallville? What's this origin story? Yeah, I was trying to think about that today um, because I did watch the show back when it started in 2001. Um, so that was when I was like in like sixth, seventh, eighth grade, so like a middle school age which was sort of perfect to watch the show because, I mean, even though it's ridiculous that, yes, it's like a 24-year-old, five-year-old actor playing a 14-year-old, as like a middle schooler, like everyone just kind of looks, in high school, looks like gloriously mature. But that's kind of like, you know, high school is like this gleaming golden gate when you're in middle school. Like everyone wants to get to high school and it seems like so dramatic and wonderful. Um, so anyway, I remember watching the show um, and at that age, I think I was actually starting to discover fan fiction, but I, for some, whatever reason, I didn't get into Smallville fan fiction at all. I didn't even look it up. I think I was reading like Star Wars Jedi Apprentice fan fiction or something <laughs> like early days. But, um, anyway, and then I, I think I watched like the first couple of seasons, you know, on, on TV. That was when you didn't have streaming. So you just watched one episode every week and you had to wait for the next week to see, if Clark and Lana are going to get together or whatever. Um, and then didn't think about it for years and years. And then like a year ago, I'm trying to remember how I got into it. I think I was reading a West Wing fan fiction and somehow, you know, got on that thing where you like an author and then you go to their page and you see what else they've written. And I, and it was this author we're going to talk about today, uh, Punk. Or no, actually, it was Punk's writing partner, We Are Many. 
um, We Are Many wrote a West Wing fic, and then I clicked on their author page, and there was a bunch of stuff. And I remember seeing one by Smallville about Smallville, and I was like, oh, mm. forgot about that show. <laughs> and I just clicked on one of the random Smallville stories, and it was actually really cool. I didn't put it on the list for today, but it was a collaboration fic between We Are Many and Punk. Um, and it was a really specific, short, stylistic piece that was based on a book by Dave Eggers called uh, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, which oh, yeah. is like a, a... I read that. Yeah, it's a really... Back in the day, yeah. Yeah, I have it on my bookshelf somewhere, and I think it's, it was like a late 90s, something like that, but it's got a really specific voice and kind of style, almost mm-hmm. like a... David Foster Wallace, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. But this Clark Lex fic was written in that Dave Eggers style. Uh, and it was, I remember just thinking like, holy crap, like this is, this mm-hmm. is better than most fan fiction and more ambitious. Um, and then so I think I went to Punk's page and this was one of the first fics uh, I found. And at that point I was in a slash and I was like, Clark Lex, oh yeah, I remember that weirdly intense friendship. Um, and I was just like hooked. So that's kind of a meandering way in, into the fandom. Uh, a train of thought there while you were talking. I now also want to read a Smallville or DC Comics um, West Wing crossover with President Lex and like his team behind the scenes. Uh, I don't know if you were teeing me up for that, but I literally just <laughs> like yesterday uh, posted a President Lex fan fiction. So actually, it's way less West Wingy than I would have liked. But uh, I was actually really thinking about West Wing when I was writing that, and I was like, oh, I really want to just like write a just super West Wing, like lots of walk and talk. And But I don't know enough about how legislation works to pull it off, probably. You know, probably most people wouldn't mind because they wouldn't either. But you're reminding me of like this era of television where like for me it's an era because it's back when i lived with my parents and could watch things on cable you remember cable anybody you know before streaming i try Um, to forget yeah but that's when i watched smallville and things like west wing and er and all that stuff because yeah i was also in middle school when it came out um but you know it's one of those shows that ran long enough that i i don't think i got to really finish out the series because i went to college and then didn't have cable while i was in college so um, but it's just, it feels like a generation of TV, like primetime television is not really a thing we have anymore. We just have streaming. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point. And I have the same feeling of nostalgia about that time. And I think a lot of it does have to do with, there's a certain night a week, seven o'clock on Thursdays or whatever it is where, you know, uh-huh. your show, you know, that it's going to be a new episode this week. And then the next day you talk to all your friends about it. It's like the X-Files and Smallville. And, uh, I don't know. There's a bunch of shows like that. That was just like, now that we have HBO and Netflix, you actually get better TV, but there was something about that weekly ritual of like network tv Mm -hmm. that felt really special yeah i miss it too i do even though it's probably worse i don't know but (laughs) i miss all those shows even smallville which like was kind of a unique sort of piece um because it's got 
like this fanfic demonstrates, Clark and Lex as friends, which you don't get a lot in Superman, so. And Tori, you were saying you kind of watched Smallville as it was going until you went off to college? Yeah. Do you remember, like, what season that would have been? I, I don't... It was a long-running show, and it's possible that it did finish before I went to college, but maybe I, I was... So. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. Um, I think... We had a DVR, so it probably at some point I caught the end, but it's just, it feels like it's been so long, I don't really remember. I watched a lot of it. I really, I was, I wasn't like super into it, but it was like one of those shows that you watch, you know? <laughs> well, I, I've seen practically no Smallville. I know that around season one, maybe two, my dad was watching some Smallville, and I saw a little bit of it. And like the only scene that stuck out in my head is some scene where it was Lex talking to Lionel because they were both like, you know, striking actors. And I thought, oh, like this Lex Luthor is interesting. So uh, that's what I've got. I know a lot more about goofy ass Silver Age Superman than I do about Smallville. But mm -hmm. I definitely like went back and, um, you know, got a little bit of context as to like what would have been going on in the show before I read this fanfic. Yeah, Lex and Lionel um, were the most interesting characters on the show i would say is as at least the they were definitely the best actors i would confidently say i think that the show had its struggles with like writing and characterization like it's it, it's a show that i love and i have a ton of nostalgia for but you know admittedly it's like not the best show but i really love these characters but um yeah lex and lionel that is two really good actors who really enjoy acting together, I think, uh, Michael Rosenbaum and John Glover. And even today, at th these days, if you see them at conventions, they're really funny and they love each other so much. Um, and it's just fun. It's like these two super intelligent characters um, that are father and son, but the relationship is extremely uneasy and they're constantly manipulating each other and toying with each other. And uh, it's a very, it's like watching chess. And that was actually some of the strongest writing probably that the show had was between those two. That's probably the reason I, I have this feeling, which is I always watch the show thinking, I'm not supposed to like Lex, right? He's got to be a villain. We know he's got to be this arch enemy to Superman. But I couldn't help it. I was like, he's charismatic. He's so compelling. And, you know, speaking of this fanfic, kind of takes that even further and kind of makes him like a nice, generous guy, which I don't know. I kind of loved him in this fanfic. So, yeah. And to, um, yeah, I would, I would say with that, this, so this fic, uh, which we'll talk about was written in 2001. Uh, actually it says published in 2000. Oh, the DVD commentary was 04. Sorry. It was like the author had seen season one. And I think there's even some commentary that, she was finishing up the piece and she had just seen like the season one finale and the Clark and Lex relationship is really very roughly. It's like friends and like seasons one, two and three, some cracks start to probably form in season three and four and it's over by five and Smallville is 10 seasons long. Um, but Lex is actually pretty much gone by season seven. So you have this, they spent like three years building this friendship. And I don't think you are wrong to like Lex. I think the writers, for the most part, knew, although there's some clumsiness in some episodes where I think they think you're supposed to be on Clark's side, but 
Clark's actually being a jerk and you're like, poor Lex, everyone's mm. just lying to him. But um, True. but yeah, okay. but the friendship is there in seasons one, two, three. It's a little shaky in four and it's done by five. And But it is, there's this interesting thing where you love Lex and he's great and charming, but it's that dramatic irony where you know that he is the ultimate enemy of Superman and it's gonna get there. So that's the fun part. Well, there's something I want to say about kind of like that end of, you know, early, early Smallville, Smallville perspective in this fanfic. But I think we should probably introduce the fanfic properly first. So you just said, uh, Sarah, when it was published, it was like, it was 2001, did we say? Yeah, I have the DVD commentary right in front of me, but that's not the original. So um, I can find out in a second. But I think it was 01. Yeah. And so in the context, the author does confirm that uh, she had written most of it. Do we have pronouns on this author? Is it she, her? I think I did see on her Tumblr, I believe it is. I'm pretty, I'm like 90% she, her. Got it. Um, but yeah, the author, did, the author did confirm in the commentary that she had not seen even all of season one when she was writing most of this. And so it even conflicts with the finale of season one. Like it diverges from canon even before that point. The fanfic is called Interstitial. And um, it seems to have been pretty well regarded in the fandom. Yeah, it uh, like I said, I wasn't around and active in fandom during that time, but the fandom was extremely active in that time. And the part of the thing I love about that Smallville fandom was, I mean, in my personal opinion, that fandom was just on fire as far as the caliber of the authors they had writing. Like it's some of my favorite fan fiction ever. And I don't think it's just because I'm obsessed with it. I think there's some credible writing like, Asked a lot was uh, writing Smallville. She is uh, one of the found. Actually, she had the original idea to start the archive of our own AO3. So she's one of the founding members of the OTW Organization for Transformative Works. Um, so she wrote Rivka T as one of my favorite authors. So there's a bunch of these like, you know, just super high caliber authors in the fandom at that time. Uh, just FYI, Tori, we did read a fanfic by Astolat for this show, but. I didn't do her the favor of like choosing one of her famous well-regarded works. That was the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon fanfic. I remember, yeah. <laughs> that wow, that was Sorry, a very that. interesting one. Yeah. That's amazing. I should read more of her stuff. Um and actually it's so funny. I reached out to her on my fanfiction podcast because I loved her Smallville fix so much and I hadn't done any research. Like I had no idea her real name and that she was like the founder of AO3. And she was so nice. She was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just really busy these days. And then after that, I was talking to uh, the host of the fanfic Maverick podcast, Chaos Blue. And she was like, oh yeah, Sarah, that's um, Naomi Novik. And she started AO3. And I was like, oh, like, I'm kind of glad she turned me down because if I would have just called her on there and just had no idea, that would have been embarrassing. But anyway, yeah, she was writing. And um, there's a bunch of just, in my opinion, incredible authors, especially in that early, like, 2001 to 2003 or four period. Um, if you go to AO3 and I think filtering by kudos is, like, still a pretty good way to find the good stuff. Um, I mean, you can always go to... Uh, I don't know if this is like arrogant, but I think my bookmarks list is like pretty well <laughs> curated. So you can always go to my bookmarks list if you want to find some good Clark Lex. Um, X Parrot is a person, uh, she's an author that I interviewed on my podcast. I love her stuff. So anyway, there's, I was supposed to be introducing this fic, I guess, but Punk was among many amazing authors writing in the early years of Smallville. So yeah, this one's called Interstitial. 
and um, we also have the benefit of a of her commentary, which she posted as a separate work called Interstitial DVD Commentary, and it's so cool because she she has a section of text, and then underneath that indented is like what she remembers about writing that, or like little behind the scenes details. So it's it's very cool. One of the things she says in passing in the DVD commentary um, is that she has a mohawk and what is it like a nose piercing? So I just appreciate yeah. the purity of her internet handle. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just punk. Yes. Just, just <laughs> I am punk. I know. I thought about that a lot, like being a part of the punk scene. I'm like, who gets the handle that's just punk? You know. Uh, this person does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that respect. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, just like All right. the, a lot of those old school authors have those cool nicknames. You're like, oh, it's because they were here before anyone else. Like, exactly. In some, in some cases, even on those like news groups and stuff, like even before the World Wide Web, people were still doing fan fiction. So that's not the case here, 2001, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, but you go back earlier and it's a lot of people just writing fan fiction under their own names, which I don't think anyone would do these days. But... Yeah. Uh, back in the 90s and, you know, 80s and, you know, the fanzine scenes, that's a lot of what people did. Yeah. And you guys probably know that better than anyone doing all this old school fic. Um, but I'm just like, I've just recently started looking into sort of fan fiction history. So it's it's really impressive to me. But yeah, there was that weird kind of like proto internet, like people didn't know maybe to be as cautious. And then I feel like everyone overly cautious or maybe appropriately cautious. And now with the generation maybe younger than me, uh, I can't remember what they're called, Generation Z or something or whatever. Uh, and they're just like putting everything out there and you're like, not everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But it's a weird sort of loop. It's like they're just like, you know, when we were teenagers in a way. <laughs> yeah, uh, but they have the internet. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right. Um, I think we should probably start in on the fan fiction. And so interstitial, it's not super long. Um, I kind of forgot to check the word count because I have the DVD commentary up also, just like you did, Sarah. And that is a different number of words. Um, but... It's 28,000. 38? 28. Um, 28, okay. So yeah, the, the DVD commentary, you know, quote DVD commentary, it's not a DVD, it's just an author commentary. That is another 12,000 words up to a nice 40,000. So it's not too long. But it's not terribly short either. There's a fair bit of story in there. Would one of you like to start us off with kind of how the fanfic opens and what the basic premise is? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Um, like I said, this was written as the author was watching season one. And, and in season one of the show, Clark is in high school. Um, but this is kind of a jump forward future fic with that one season of canon in mind. So this is after Clark has gone to college he is in Metropolis. Um, this is all Clark's point of view, so it's a single character point of view. Um, and for the first bit of the fic, actually, d he doesn't mention Lex yet, even though if you're pulling this fic up, you know it's a Clark-Lex uh, romance fic, or will, or will be eventually. But um, we know that it's like classic Superman, so Clark is in Metropolis. He's working on the planet, although there is no Superman. He is not Superman yet. Um, so yeah, but the, the interesting thing is it starts and Clark's got this scar on his arm. And if you know anything about Smallville or Superman, Superman has invulnerable skin. So it's already kind of intriguing 
and it's intriguing to Clark that this is something new. He doesn't understand why he has this scar all of a sudden, because from the time that he was a teenager, uh, really in the pilot of the show, and Lex runs into Clark with his car, and sends him into the river, and it's like what the runner of the show called the meat violent, as opposed to a meat cute. Uh, that's how they meet as a car crash. But anyway, from that, we know that Clark's not supposed to be able to get hurt. So that's the first thing that we were kind of in Clark's bedroom with him. And he's like looking at this scar on his arm that, oh, that he remembers getting as a kid. So it's like it comes back. So that's kind of the first scene. I wasn't sure if I should keep going or <laughs> that's kind of the opening. No, that's great. Tori and I were just both trying to jump on each other yeah. to talk next. You go ahead, Amato. Okay. Well, I was going to say a couple things that I appreciated about this setup, if I can articulate them properly. You know, for early Smallville, the premise and the draw of the show was knowing that this was going to be a prequel to kind of the more established Superman mythos, right? Like we, like Tori, we read that Lois and Clark fanfic, right? And that's a very bog standard Superman setup. And I appreciated two things about this fanfic and one which is that the author was going with that promise more or less it's like oh and now we're moving forward into you know metropolis and you know he's left smallville behind and that's and the stuff that happened in smallville was like prequel that happened years ago which is kind of like what you expected as an early smallville smallville viewer um but i also like that it's not superman yet and it's not because the author is saying like, oh, we're not doing Superman in this continuity. It's because the author is very specifically still keeping this before that. Like Clark is, has not yet figured out that that's kind of where he wants to go with his powers. When we meet Lois, the author is specifically making her younger and brasher and like not quite as together as a future Lois Lane would be. And so it's like really interestingly positioned. It's like... It's kind of like the Smallville of the Metropolis show, where it's like, where they're not quite at that point where the normal canon setup is yet. It's funny, though, because this is a fan work, and there's this, I kept expecting this thread to be addressed, but, you know, we alluded to it with the initial thing about the scar, is that he's slowly losing his powers, Okay, yeah, and yet, that. that's not really the crux of the fic. It's just, it's happening, and it's talked about a few times. But, you it's know, an because it's a fanfic, incident is what it is. Yeah. Because it's a fanfic, you could say, maybe this doesn't, he doesn't go on to become Superman. You know, this could be AU. This could be anything. And I find that really interesting. Um, also, I had to keep reminding myself, because... You know, the series, like we mentioned, is 10 seasons. I had to keep reminding myself the author had only seen the first season. So it wasn't, like, actually post-series, you know what I mean? Like, I kept forgetting. And they even mentioned their author's notes. They cast, um, oh, what did I forget her name? The woman who plays Anya and Buffy as Lois. And I was like, all right, Lois wasn't in the series yet. Like, I completely forgot. (laughs) Until I saw that note, I was picturing her as the Lois from Smallville. But the author had no idea. It is funny, yeah, with that season one perspective that um, some things they actually ended up sort of being the same, that like just coincidentally mm-hmm. the show, like I think she mentioned that Chloe's mother had died or something that happens in the show or there might be something wacky with that. Um, but yeah, this Lois is very much, which I love, I love this Lois because she's very sharp. Uh, I was trying to think of a word to describe her early. It's not 
bitchy exactly. It's more like bratty. And there's like a mm-hmm. there's like a uh, an immaturity like Amato mentioned with that that she's like she is good at her job, but she's also like so uh, bullheaded and obnoxious. And Clark doesn't like her, which I think in the comics and some shows is sometimes that happens first, but most of the time, like Clark and Lois are like soulmates or whatever. But I like that in this, that she's very much a city creature. And I think part of that might have something to do with the author probably seeing some of the Superman movies and possibly Lois and Clark, the show. So we didn't get Erica Durance yet and her being introduced as like also living in Smallville, which I never loved in the show, but I like her as this like sharp, bratty city creature. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love that. Yeah, one of the words the author used to describe her in the commentary is petty, which seems <laughs> accurate. And in any Superman mythos, hands down, Lois is the one who's more committed to her job than Clark, because Clark has other things mm-hmm. going on. But this one's just so desperate to like prove herself and get the foot in the door. And so she's an antagonist in this story. And the author kind of goes, I feel like, right up to the line of making her unlikable just flat out. And, you know, I'm inclined to like Lois, so it did not go over that line for me but like she's she's an obstacle to the main progression of the plot and the happiness of the characters in this fan fiction not like a major obstacle but like she feels an antagonist role yeah that's that's a good point it's almost like a antagonist and in the author commentary she does mention kind of at the end i think that uh there's this scene where she and clark are talking about clark and his relationship with lex and he kind of brings up the personal relationship, uh, spoiler, that she actually, there's a sort of background implied relationship with Jimmy and she like does not want anyone to know because she's so focused on her career. And there, I feel like a little bit of that in the end kind of humanizes her. And there are little moments where it's, I would not call it, as you said, I don't think it's character bashing, but she is like, she's so bossy and so much of sort of a force of nature that yeah, she's like, Clark is kind of just trying to figure out what's going on with himself personally and also reconnecting with Lex. And Lois is kind of like, what are you doing with Lex Luthor? Like, what's going on here? And there's also this kind of B-plot sort of that you th- kind of teases you with this investigation that Lois has going on that ends up not being what you think it is, but it's fun. Yeah, like, well, having, you know knowing that this is Lex and Clark, right, kind of frees Lois up to, I don't know, do something else, right? We mentioned, the motto you mentioned, she's sort of an antagonist, but also she just gets to be kind of like, you know, when Lois and Clark meet in early years in a lot of Superman media, just kind of teasing him. But also, you know, she gets to kind of bully Lex because she does not like him because he probably has done some shady stuff. It's sort of unclear. (laughs) I mean, definitely Lex has done some shady stuff, but I feel like we can talk about this B-plot right here, just get it out of the way, because there's this whole thing with, like, this um, terrorist arsonist, you know, at least environmental and name guy, and, and like, his mysterious death, which might be convenient for Luther Corps or not, or whatever, and Lois is just off in this completely different genre where this is a serious investigation mm-hmm. that's going to lead to, like, deep, you know, secrets and that sort of thing. And it turns out that's just not the genre this story is. But, like, that's how she's operating. Is that, like, it's up to a plucky in- investigator and her sidekick to, like, you know, uncover the deep truths here. And it- it's all 
it's more or less a red herring in the story, right? That's just not, it, it, as far as we learn, it was just an accident. Yeah, I think so. I think it is a red herring. It sort of teases you. I like that it gives you like a place to go in the newsroom and it like it feels very like Lois and Clarky and it's kind of intriguing. Um, but you sort of learn as Clark and Lex keep having these interactions, it starts out with a car crash. Like, uh, Clark gets in a car crash and then they just run into each other over a few scenes and then you kind of realize that that's really the story is this like reconciliation story um, but I do love like the new I love just the Daily Planet newsroom and any Superman media I love Perry yelling at Jimmy and the sound of typewriters or computers or whatever and um, so you you get that fun kind of atmosphere but yeah it is a red herring I think as you say well, let's back up and talk about kind of how this fanfic leads into its main plot, because it is interesting. Like, we brought up the fact that Clark's randomly losing his powers, and very oddly, I guess we can just say, Tori, you kind of said this, the story doesn't resolve why that's happening or whether it's temporary or anything about it. It's just a thing that's happening. But it serves a couple of functions, and one is to shake up Clark from this kind of just groove of laying low and you know not making himself too visible that he's been doing for a few years like he hasn't even been trying too hard on his job honestly he's just kind of like uh he's just kind of interning or whatever and it also gets us to shake up lex's relationship with clark because uh sarah you mentioned clark saves someone in a car crash i mean you know it might not have been that she was only alive thanks to him but he's first on the scene he like helps pry her loose she turns out to be, like, the daughter of a senator, so she's kind of important. Um, but he's also brought to the hospital because he was involved in the crash and has a possible concussion, and they want to check him out. And he's actually injured from this. I mean, earlier in the family, he gets a paper cut, and, you know, we were talking about his invulnerability going away. But he's actually injured, actually goes to the hospital. And that's also what brings Lex into this, because it's very heavily implied here that Lex is keeping an eye on Clark in general. And this comes to his attention. Mm -hmm. And he rushes to the hospital and he's like, what happened? Are you okay? And this, you know, this is, this is starting in on the Lex-Clark relationship where Lex knows that Clark has superpowers. So there's the multiple levels that question is operating at. And what, what Lex is asking is, how on earth could you possibly get hurt? I have hit you with a car myself. And what Clark responds is, didn't you see the news? I'm a hero. And so he's deflecting and being like, I got, I got in an incident and that's why I'm hurt. And so it's this big lie continuing as like a foundational part of their relationship. Right. Well, and, and Clark doesn't know that Lex knows, obviously. But also the other layer is that Lex says, oh, I know Amanda, the girl that Clark saved. I'm here to visit her because she's the daughter of a senator, so they run in the same rich kid circles, right? But, yeah, he's actually checking up on Clark. It's just, you know, he says that he's there for Amanda, and it's just this kind of, like, layering of, you know, the lies they've been telling each other, but also kind of the lies they've been telling themselves. Yeah, it's, I love, I love how the author manages to get Clark and Lex kind of in the same room. And, and this scene in particular in the hospital where you first see Lex is really interesting to read in the commentary. Um, the author talks about specifically how she likes to write Lex and she has these kind of like rules. One is that Lex is always heard before he's seen. So you hear 
Lex go Clark, and then Clark turns around, which is actually, I think, fairly common in the show. You always see like Lex come, you hear him coming up the stairs at the barn loft or whatever, and he just sort of randomly seems to find Clark places. But that is, as Amato said, a big thing in the show is like, you are aware that Lex knows that something is up. He never quite gets there in the show, but it's this constant like gaslighting thing where Lex will sort of witness something crazy and either the show will conveniently wipe his memory, like he'll hit his head on a wall or something and just forget, um, or Clark will just straight lie to his face about it. And that that's one of, I thought one of the more powerful scenes in this is in a little bit where Clark flashes back to how they're, they kind of, the rift uh, for them, it was just basically like the last straw and Lex is back as a lie. But um, yeah, I love this. Like Amada said too, they're having like almost two different conversations at first, um, which is mentioned in the, the author commentary too. I um, can't remember where I was going with that, but I, I love this hospital scene. I think we might want to talk about that flashback sooner rather than later, because I mean, the author, the author kind of holds back on the information for a while, but it's very important to know that these two have not talked for years. And, you know, even the last time they talked was only in passing. And it was, it turns out it, that there was a falling out when they were younger back in Smallville days. And that basically what happened is that Lex, you know, had seen enough that he had great suspicions about weird things going on. And, you know, Clark was always lying to him about it and saying like, no, obviously, what you just saw did not happen. You use the word gaslighting, which is very appropriate. And it all kind of comes to a head in an incident that the author kind of spends a little time describing and going into. Um. Yeah, and that is also in the DVD commentary. This is particularly a great section to read. So it's after, so you get this hospital scene with Lex checking on Clark and Amanda. Then Lex drives Clark home. And then once Clark gets home, he like reflects on their past. And like you said, they, they hadn't seen each other for a while because of this scene and the and the author shows in the commentary she originally had this all packed into like one super dense paragraph that was like i think she says um uh anytime you compressed four scenes into seven sentences there's going to be trouble so she she talks about as a writer how much more effective it is to show rather than tell so she basically had this like uh expository or explanatory i forget the word but uh, just section where she just like fills you in on like everything since graduation and how it got them there. And then she says she basically ended up using that as a timeline. She's like, this is really boring, but I want to show that all this happened. So then, yeah, she goes through this flashback of Clark and Lex are walking down the sidewalk. Some nutcase with a shotgun comes out and it's like it's classic Smallville. Like everyone's always trying to kill Lex or maybe Lana. Uh, and then Clark just steps right in front of him, saves Lex's life, but it's like, there's no way to hide that. He just got shot in the chest. And so, like, Lex is in shock. This is, like, clue number 58 that, like, Clark is invulnerable. And then they have to go through this rigmarole, like, Clark zips up his jacket to hide his, like, shredded shirt. And then he lies to the sheriff and he lies to the people around them. And then uh, he's driving Lex home. It's just such a good scene. And they're in the car and Lex is obviously freaked out, but he's not said a word the whole car ride. And then Clark turns to him and says like, ha ha, got lucky, right? 
like, huh? You know, some like ridiculous line that you're like, oh, are you kidding me, Clark? But he can't quite bring himself to tell the truth. And then it's really interesting um, that the, uh, the author in the commentary, she basically says in her, in her, the background of her mind, she's like, that was that Clark saying that, that ridiculous lie right to his face is the straw that broke the camel's back. And she says, if Clark hadn't said that, Lex would have gone inside, had a drink, thrown the glass against the wall, crawled into bed and woken up tomorrow to do it all over again. But uh, I wanted Clark to turn to Lex and lie so deliberately that it was obvious Clark was brushing Lex off. This is important because Lex hadn't yet said anything. He could have let it go. So just like so much thought put behind that was what really impressed me that like she could have just had whatever dialogue she wanted, but instead she was like so deliberate about it. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's interesting things going on here with kind of like why Clark is doing this. And part of it is his relationship with his parents. And the author mentions like offhand in the commentary, uh, she doesn't like Jonathan. She thinks he's like a selfish hypocrite. And, you know, you get the impression in this fanfic that, you know, Clark He's trying to be very, very careful because that's what his parents have told him he should be doing. And, you know, he's he's at some level wary around Lex in particular because, you know, his his father hates the Luthers and, you know, would would definitely not trust him. And so, you know, Clark's a good kid and he's been told that, like, telling Luther, telling Lex about your secret would be the worst possible thing. And so he does that. And that's that's what he does. He lies to Lex all the time. And, you know, Part of what he's doing in Metropolis also that he's not kind of pushing himself to stand out even in his job is because of his parents telling him to do that. And there's a level, you know, this is all from Clark's point of view, and he doesn't use these words, but there's a level of resentment that's built up about that. And so part of it is like when he's losing his powers, and it's very distressing that they're kind of coming in and out. Some of them are coming, some of them are going. He doesn't know why, he doesn't know when. And there's about two people he could talk to directly about this, and that's his parents. But he doesn't want to talk to his parents. And like, through the fanfic, even like after his accident, and you know, his mom eventually tracks him down by phone and is really worried because they saw this on the news, but he just, he doesn't want to talk to his parents about this thing. And that's partially because of that level of uh, resentment that, that he has developed, and I think partially because with Lex back in his life, he's kind of like rejecting his parents and their advice and their protectiveness of him to some extent in exchange for like letting Lex back into his life. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, commentary that you read that people took from the show is that it's almost an allegory of like a coming out story. But whether you read that or not, it's always about... Clark cannot maintain authentic relationships in his life because he has to lie. And that's that's not just with Lex, it's also with Lana and Chloe and Pete, his friends, but it seems particularly intense with Lex and Lana. Um, and that, yeah, the only people that know any, you know, the truth are his parents. And so it's like this very becomes this very insular family relationship. Like in season two, three, I think. There's this episode where Lex uses the term Kent Cabal. He's like, your little Kent Cabal. Like, there's this little secretive trio, and it's because they're... And, I, you know, a lot of people don't like Jonathan, particularly. You know, you can read... Politics don't really enter into the show, but he's like a rural farmer 
white man. Like he's probably conservative. Um, and he does, he treats Lex terribly. Like he's just totally against Lex from the first episode. Um, so I too, I hate seeing Jonathan treat Lex like crap in the show. Um, but I also, you know, you understand that, that, Jonathan and Martha, to them, Clark is their entire world, like sun and moon, like everything. And if anything were to happen to him, they would just be destroyed. So that's kind of the tragic part is that like, you think if Jonathan would give Lex a chance, then he would realize that like, this guy really does just want to be Clark's friend. And like, they're these, the other thing about the relationship is like, they're both these like alienated kids, even though Lex is 21 in the show. Um, like they're both in these like, very opposite ways um they're like the same but there's this, actually there's this great line that astolat has in her uh reconcilable differences is the fic that she did and it's something like brothers under the skin or uh two different kinds of aliens something like that and i thought that's so perfect because they're like lex is like this bald billionaire that like has been a weirdo outcast since he was a kid and Clark is literally an alien. No one else on the planet is going to understand what he's going through. So that's, I think, the appeal of the friendship and for people in some fan fiction, appeal of the romance, that they really are the same on a level, but it's just overcoming all these lies and all this crazy stuff. Um, so that's what the journey is, I guess, in, in this, is them coming back to where maybe they should have been before. Yeah. And um, like I mentioned before... You don't really want to like like Lex when you're watching the show because you know he's going to be this this evil dude. But at the same time, this is a fanfic, and I was something I was saying to Amato the other day, which is like you couldn't have quite done a Lex Clark in the same way with any other show because in this they're actually friends. It's just the lies that get between them, and the author. I don't know if it was an author's note or it must have been an author's note. But it was an author's note on something they'd said that implied that Lex is uncomfortable when he's not lying, which I thought was pretty clever. I don't think we've mentioned, actually, the writing in this fanfic is really good. Like, it's strong, descriptive, all the way through. Um, there's some lines that really stand out, like one where um, Clark sees Lex as, like, a sea creature when he's driving at night. I love that part. I love that line, too. There's all these great little touches, and I feel like, you know, with a kind of relationship fanfic like this, you might expect, oh, there to be great little bits of dialogue between the leads and, like, you know, really cute things and, you know, and funny jokes or, like, exchanges between them. And there is that, but there's also all these little bits that kind of make the world seem really rich and, like, are really entertaining to read throughout. I'm thinking, like, back in the newsroom, the thing with, like, um... There's a little toy fish on Clark's desk, and you know the author makes a point of like, oh, I decided to have him play with it at some point, and that's great. But then later on, he comes back to his desk, and like, there's another like toy animal on there, and there's just a line where once again, you know, not for the first time, Clark wondered what happened at the Daily Planet, what was going on at the Daily Planet when he wasn't there, and it's just like all these little cute, funny little things and lived-in details. That's the amazing part. And like Tori said, and you said, Amato, like the writing is so good. And that's why it's so, I think, enriching if you read it 
just as a story for us, and then you go and read the commentary, there's on that particular thing, on that toy thing, the author says something like, I imagine that there's like a male clerk that like has a crush on Clark. So he or she just leaves him these little toys and just like little stuff like that. Like, yeah, you're not going to pick that up without the commentary. But if you do read the commentary, you have this like extra layer of like just this whole world. And, you know, besides the stuff in the commentary, as you said, even like, like to me, the descriptions of Metropolis as a city are so cool because it's very like, like street level. Like you're seeing like the people walking on the street around Clark and the food trucks and the vendors and people commuting to and from work. And he's, he's always like looking up at the buildings. And it's so it's not a typical Superman story where he's looking down on his city. It's like Clark experiencing the sights and sounds of Metropolis. And there's a lot of like Tori mentioned that the Lex driving Clark home and it's night and he like it's the light on Lex and he has no hair. So his skin is like sort of purple and blue like this like underwater and like the colors and the sounds of this fic are like incredible and one element of the writing that also shines through when you're reading the author's commentary is the level of thought into the characterization of like how characters act um sarah you mentioned the like her discussion of like kind of the rules about how lex presents himself and then the times when he breaks that for some reason or another and what that means but i'm thinking of for example um she her saying that clark takes the bus even though Metropolis also has a subway, but it's because ordinary people get frustrated when, you know, they're stuck on a subway and, you know, can't get off for some reason. It would drive Clark crazy because he might hear somebody like up above who he would ordinarily be able to help, but he can only get off at a subway stop. And it's like kind of easier to tell a bus driver like, hey, I need to get out, get out. Like it's, it's urgent. And then he gets out. And so just those little bits of characterization that aren't even relevant to the story, but it's just she clearly really was trying to get into the heads of her two leads in terms of what they would do. She's also one of those writers who describes her story writing process as starting from the beginning, continuing, and having, and then the characters deciding what they want to do, which is how, you know, how into that role she is when she's writing it. Yeah, and I love that because, you know, as a, as a writer and a writer who's trying to be a better writer than I currently am, that stuff is so cool to... Uh, absorb and try to learn from because um you know that it just shows that like people talk about planning and outlining and stuff and i think that's all important but it also she really under underscores the importance of like ex exploration and exploratory writing which is that you don't know there should be some element of that like you can't plan everything before you even get into like the writing process itself should you should discover some things in there um, and yeah, and about all that like background detail, like, as you said, it's not exactly relevant to the story, but something about that just f gives the story a realism and a grounding, even if you don't quite notice it. it. I think because the author is so confident in their vision of the world that they're placing you in. And I think talking about the author's kind of writing process here brings us to one of the more entertaining parts to hear her talk about. because. You know, Lex and Clark re reconnect. Uh, they're flirting. Lex is kind of leading it off. And Clark, you know, Clark's not unresponsive. And so Lex basically is like, hey, we're meeting up. Um, I forget exactly how it happens conversationally. But basically he gets Clark to go out to lunch with him um, mm -hmm. maybe the next day. It's like pretty soon. Um, 
And there's a little bit else going on around this time, like Lois sees Lex and Clark together and accosts them, uh, demanding, you know, Lex comment on this other plot that's that turns out not to be relevant with like the arsonist who died and that sort of thing. Um, but mostly, mostly I'm just uh, thinking of the date that it's not called that, but the lunch date that Lex ends up dragging Clark on. That seat is kind of especially humorous because Lex takes him to a really fancy sushi place. And also this is written in like 2002, I think, before um, I feel like, a, especially in Kansas, they would have a lot of cultural knowledge of what sushi was. So Clark's like, doesn't know what wasabi is, but Lex doesn't actually believe that he does. He thinks Clark is joking, which is hilarious. And the plate is filled with, you know, like tentacles and, you know, mostly just raw fish, but there's a few, there's like some octopus tentacles probably. And Clark's just like looking at it like, I don't know what to do. And I thought this was just like especially hilarious, honestly. Well, it's it's cute on multiple levels. I like that Clark had been there before, but with Lois and she just gets the cucumber <laughs> mm-hmm. roll, which, in the, au- right, which right. in the author commentary she mentions is like the the least adventurous thing on the menu that you that could plausibly be called sushi is what Lois gets. And like, I guess Clark follows. Right. Sushi. And it's a I fancy love- place too, which is hilarious. Like order the cucumber roll at the expensive sushi restaurant. Right. Anyway, sorry. Well, go on. I had questions about the sushi restaurant because it's a Kaiten sushi. It's a, it's a rotating sushi restaurant, except that they're in little boats. Oh, so yeah. I guess that's what makes it classy instead of being on like a, you know, a, a track. Uh, I get. I, is that what I think the classy sushi restaurants do? I mean, Clark and Lex are eating in one of the like classy little tatami rooms in the back. Yeah, it is interesting because I think those belt sushi places are usually the cheap sushi. Like you don't know how long the yeah, fish has are. been sitting there. <laughs> but yeah, these are little yeah. boats on like a trickling river. But yeah, they and actually she mentions that she considered putting them at the sushi bar, just on like stools and their knees would kind of be touching, so you get some like flirty there. But she wanted that sort of intimacy of like a room with just them um but yeah i I was just gonna say uh amato i did love the mention of clark's been there before with lois and the cucumber rolls and there's also a great line that um clark's been there before with lois who always eats cucumber rolls and sits facing the door so she can watch for celebrities like so she's just (laughs) literally stuffing her face with like cheap sushi so she can like stare out the window or or whoever and like try Try and find like her sources to do stories. So right. She's so like career oriented that like lunch just serves as a function of her work. So I love that. <laughs> it's basically all Lois does in this story is like chase people down for interviews. So I love it. Oh man. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, but that means that I do buy the sushi restaurant kind of as like a place that has the cheap like sushi for everybody in the front and then the exclusive rooms in the back. And of course, you know. Uh, Lex is one of those. And this is one of those scenes with like cute banter between the romantic prospects. And the fun thing reading it is that the author goes into great detail in the author's commentary about how this scene just would not end. She could not find a way to wrap it up. It was just Lex and Clark continuing to be cute and like having conversation over this sushi. And like she says she had to like sit on this for I think at least weeks. I forget how long just kind of trying to find a way to resolve the scene. And eventually she had to like cut out more than half of it of what she wrote. Yeah. And I know uh, I love, I loved hearing that because yeah, as 
you know, a writer and aspiring to be better, like you do that where you're like, you're having so much fun with the scene and like this dialogue, but you, you have to like, for the sake of the story, the pacing, the structure, like you, you can't do that. So it's great to like see authors that you admire go through that too. And they just have to like cut it, you know? And in nowadays it's, I mean, I suppose they just cheap, who knows if she kept, well, I guess she did keep it cause she gives you some excerpts here. But it's nice these days with Google Drive. I mean, I just have a, a growing document with like cuts and deleted scenes that I'm constantly like, I was like, well, I might want it later, but I don't know yet. So I'll just cut it out, paste it there, get it out of the way. So um, anyway, yeah, but I love that she gives you those little sort of snapshot that like this was just like a scene that would never end. <laughs> and I would need to check, but is this the scene that leads into their, you know, kind of climactic relationship conversation about lies and such? Uh, I think that is, I wrote a very rough little outline because the after lunch really, uh, yeah, Lois costs Lex on the sidewalk and they do that. And then they go back to the planet, um, where Clark has to, oh, he has to finish the article and, and uh, Perry kind of punts the article out of Lois's hands into Clark's hands, or he's already done that, but he has to finish it. Um, I think then, I think it's a later scene because, um, oh, okay, so the next day, or actually the same day, oh, it's the Clark same goes home night? on the bus. He's walking yes. home, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, he, and Lex yeah. is waiting outside the apartment, like leaning up against his like hot sports car or whatever. And then they really get into it. Like, and uh, then they do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then then they do it. Then they do the scene. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they not don't quite. Do it. Not yet. <laughs> not they quite. do the but... thing that has to happen before the doing it, which is Clark tells Lex truth. So. Well, that's the thing, though, about this fanfic, which is interesting. I mean, the one thing about this fanfic, which is interesting, um, this is really the crux of the whole fanfic. And I would call it the climactic scene is this relationship they have where eventually, you know, um, Lex accuses Clark of always lying to him all the time, like Mm -hmm. Clark does. And Clark eventually spills, like, I'm an alien. Here's everything that's been going on, including his worries about his powers being lost and, you know, all these reasons why he lied to Lex and all that sort of thing. This is only halfway through the fanfic, though. And... I mean, I think I could describe everything else in the fanfic as falling action, because this is, this is it. This is the main thing. Like, even what we've alluded to of them having sex later, like, it's not, it's not the turning point of the story or anything like that. Right. This should be the main thing. But it's kind of odd. Like the author kind of glosses what Clark says. He's basically like, you know, he explains this and this and everything because we know, and it's, it's fine. But then, you know, Lex is like, I always knew. And that's kind of just it. And I almost feel like there's way more tension in the sex scene that happens later on in the fanfic. Like that feels more like a climax, pardon the pun. This feels like a, a precursor to them having sex in a weird way. Like, I feel like the tension is still there. It's just about them having sex now, not about the truth coming out. But it is strange how, like, how quickly this diffuses. But that works well for, you know, them kind of reestablishing trust, I guess. Yeah, that is, that is very interesting. Because, yeah, if you were setting this story up and structuring it, you would probably do the big reveal where Clark tells the truth. Like that is the turning point or the midpoint of the story or whatever. But I was trying to think about this too. Like, I think it has something to do with, even though the author only had one season to work with, 
it's kind of the same in the show as to her imagined backstory. Is it like there were so many years of lies? And so it's been such this like long thing coming. And so there's like, it's a friendship that was broken, but then there's also the underlying sexual tension of the romance. And so if you, once Clark tells the truth and he's been wanting to do this so long, yeah, that like they're outside and Clark's just like, I'm an alien, which almost seems clumsy, but it's like, it's almost like, why drag it out more? Like for, especially if you're of the show, you've been waiting forever. You're just like, fucking tell him Clark. But um, yeah, and then there is a kiss, but yeah, there's, it's like, it's not over yet. And I think it has something to do with, yeah, just like from it's almost like from there they can start to build a romance and that's the second half. It's like they have to get rid of the elephant in the room, which is the big lie that they both have known about. Like I know that you know that you know that I know. Blah, blah, blah. And once you get over that, it's like, okay, now we can start the romance. Right. And it's interesting because Amato, you brought up like what is the climax of the story and what is the tension? And I feel like there is not as much tension after this, but they sort of just have a fun, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off sort of romp, and that's most of the story, which is because, probably because this author is so talented at writing, is extremely enjoyable to read, so. You know, listening to you two, I think you're right. I, I don't think I can, can actually call this the climax of the story and the rest of it falling action. And I think you're right, it, the story is a lot about building that relationship, because now that I'm looking at it and, you know, just going into the next scene where, like, the next day, Clark is covering a city council meeting and they're texting or emailing back and forth all during it because it's super boring. Um, after the conversation, they're basically de facto dating. They have not used those words, but like they're kind of an item now. And after that, there is kind of a lot of navigating what that relationship's going to be like between the two of them. And, you know, part of it is like how much can, can Lex do ostentatious displays of wealth in order to show his affection for Clark? And, you know, what kind of conversations do they have? Like, what, what role does, you know, is Lex allowed to criticize Clark's lack of ambition? Or to what extent is that cute? Or, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and I guess, I guess you're right, because that relationship is so new and built on so much that has been established, there actually is a lot of tension in it, I guess. You're right. And I guess that is the tension that propels us all the way up until the sex and after. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I can't quite articulate it because, yeah, I don't know. But it's almost like, yeah, they are de facto dating after that. And they both sort of know that, like, well, you're the biggest deal to me of my life. You're it for me. And so they both know that. And they're, yeah, they just got to, like, figure out sort of the, the details of it. And there is still kind of a little bit of attention because, Clark hasn't told Lex like about the scar or why he was hurt quite yet. And Lex knows that. But I think part of it is like the story is in, in some ways like a story about, I don't want to say coming of age, but Clark is definitely more mature by the end of it. Like he's learning to live more authentically. And actually in that last sex scene, there's sort of some pillow talk and they get into the sort of why Clark might be losing his powers. And there's a moment where Clark starts to tell the truth, but he's not, he doesn't quite articulate it. And then Lex says, you don't have to tell me, which is like his growth is that in Smallville and the whole sort of thrust of Lex in the first couple 
few seasons, actually the whole show is that he wants the truth. That's all he wants from Clark is he wants Clark to tell him the truth. Um, but in this moment, he kind of like says, you don't have to. And he sort of gives that to Clark. And so that's like the, you finally get that growth at the end after they sleep together. But anyway. Yeah, and that's kind of a, a big scene because that's coming right on the heels of Lex sort of being insecure about Clark maybe lying to him. It's like, you know, Lex has to actively step back and be like, look, it's okay, like, we've got time, we'll work this out, and that Lex knows that Clark, you know, is trying to be truthful and authentic. And so, you know, on the larger sense, yeah. they're fine. Yeah, there is that moment where it's almost like Lex goes, ugh. Like not a, like there's still another secret, and then it's only a few seconds because Clark absolutely tells him everything he knows. But it's almost sweet that like Lex would almost allow that to like start to happen again. Like he's so paranoid and he's so hurt by being lied to all those years, and yet he loves Clark enough to be like, "You don't have to tell me," even though it's like, "Yeah, you do, Clark." <laughs> Yeah, like I mentioned before, Lex just seems like a really nice guy in this whole thing, but it sort of works. Like, there's allusions to his manipulative business dealings, but what we see of him is just kind of being insecure and kind to Clark, mostly, and to Amanda, who features yeah. more heavily in this than we would have thought initially. We kind of skipped over this scene, but Clark and Amanda and Lex go to see a baseball game. This is kind of explicitly Lex being nice to Amanda, who is at least a friendly acquaintance. It's not clear how much they hang out normally, but because her mom, who is a senator, is out, and so she, you know, doesn't have family members hang out with, and apparently is, you know, lonely some of the time. And she knows Clark and is fond of him from the saving her from the car wreck incident. And the baseball game, I feel like it's, you know, it's an excuse for character moments. The author in the commentary describes describes herself as being surprised that that ended up happening also. She said it like Clark wanted to go to a baseball game. So that's what happened next in the story. Yeah. But it also comes on the heels of Amanda telling the story of how like uh, Lex picked her up from school and they played hooky and he took her to see the penguins at the zoo. And so this is a bunch of fun, cute moments. But I was thinking about it as I was reading it. I was like, why is this so fun? Part of it is the cute dialogue and the cute moments between all of the characters. Amanda's also like teasing Lex constantly and it's pretty sweet, but it's also the delight of the fact that Lex can take them anywhere that he wants and get anything that he wants because he's rich, you know? And so you get that fa fun fantasy moment of like, they can sit wherever they want in the stadium because Lex owns the stadium, you know, they can get whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. And it's, it's uh, fun for that reason as well, I guess. Yeah. I think that's one reason why a lot of comic book kind of uh, heroes and villains, they're like all billionaires because it solves right. all of your sort of plot problems about like, Oh, Bruce Wayne just builds the uh, watchtower that orbits the earth. <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I, the, the Lex Amanda thing was like a lot of times I don't like original characters playing big roles because to me, I'm kind of like, Oh, I didn't come here for an original character. I, I don't have any emotional investment in this character yet. But I do like, I'm kind of of two minds about Amanda. I, I do actually really like her and I like her in this story. And it's definitely like a big brother, little sister 
kind of relationship, um, even though you might like conceivably consider it creepy that like this guy's hanging out with his teenager, but the way that the author puts it, she's like, you know, that these are both like sort of rich private school kids that, you know, are just kind of um, have trouble probably fitting in with like normal people and normal society. And part of uh, the most of that is just like the money and notoriety they get that like, they're just never going to be on the same level as like their classmates so that he understands something in Amanda that maybe she doesn't quite understand about herself or that she wouldn't, I don't know. I, it, it's kind of mysterious about how the friendship really started, but he's definitely like, I think the author says something about Lex is doing for Amanda what he sort of tried to do for Clark in season one of the show, which is like, take this, you know, dorky kid under his wing and teach him a little bit about the world and, so I do enjoy that. Um, but part of me does think that like almost I think maybe what you're getting at a bit, Tori, is that like Lex seems so nice in this. And but there is a little bit of me where I'm like, I think he's almost like a little bit softer than I would have liked. Like I want a little edgier, darker Lex. And I do like that there are a few hints, especially of what Lex of what Lois is accusing Lex and Luthercore of doing, which is like potentially killing some radical off so that they can benefit from some land grab or something like that. Like, I actually really like that in my Lex Luthor. Like, I like him kind of, like, dark, and I like him to be a villain in some ways. And Amanda definitely, like, softens Lex up and makes him, like, this big brother character. But I did enjoy her. Uh, I remember when Lois accuses him of that. And, you know, after that scene, and Clark's like, so you, you didn't have that guy killed, right? And Lex says, Clark, I, I don't kill people. I have other ways of getting what I want. And I think the author's, the line of the story is something like, this was not reassuring and Lex did not intend it to be. Yeah, uh, I love yeah. that. So like, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like the author's trying to say that part of Lex is still there. It's just that this is Lex trying to show another part of himself that he does not usually get to. I think that works because we have that part of Lex contextually established outside of this fanfic, but I, I still almost feel like I would have liked to see, like, it feels like a bit of a disconnect that the author sort of only ever tells us, oh, you know, Lex says this stuff, but we don't ever see him demonstrate this, what I would consider to be kind of a main side of his personality, right? The kind of devious side, but... So yeah. you're saying Lex could have had at least one or two people killed in this fanfic, and, you know, that would have rounded him out some. I believe him. <laughs> I believe him when he says he doesn't need to kill people, but I still want to know what he does, you know? What does he do that's not killing? You know what I mean? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I like a Lex that is, like, obsessive and uh, kind of will, you know, the ends justify the means. Um, and you're, And I think part of that is because the author was only working from season one, where we're Season one especially is extremely sympathetic to Lex, I think. Like you do, like you said, you know he's going to be a bad guy, but you you don't get as much of that darkness until like seasons three, four, and then especially five, six, seven is super dark Lex. But season one, he's like, he's always trying to help Clark out. He's trying to help him date Lana. He's actually also tries to help Jonathan and Martha with the farm by investing in the farm. Like he wants nothing more than to be an honorary member of the Kent family because of how his relationship with his father is. And he has no friends. Clark is his only friend. And so he's, he's just really, it's like, it's almost like he's very like, 
he tries so hard in season one and it's um it just kind of goes downhill from there for him but um so that's i think that is part of it is um just kind of that reflection that the author wasn't terribly interested probably in drawing characterization from like the comics or darker lexes this is like projecting forward from that nice season one lex that's just trying so hard i'd like to circle back a little bit to the sex scene which is fairly lengthy and specifically um i just wanted to ask your two's impressions in the author commentary the author says this was the first time i wrote a did you say male male sex scene or did you say any sex scene at all i think male male I think Punk was like writing in the X-Files and some other fandoms before, so it's possible they were right, writing yeah. Mulder Scully, but I'm not sure. But in any case, the author said she was pretty happy with how it turned out, actually. Yeah, I liked it. As a heterosexual straight female, It's you always have that sort of, I don't know what you would call it, in like most of us get our male gay sex knowledge from fan fiction. And so it is kind of tricky with straight females writing male male scenes because you you've not experienced any of that yourself um and so there is like you almost get these like you probably get a lot of straight women writing inaccurate sex scenes i don't know how inaccurate but i definitely have seen some criticism on tumblr of like sort of ridiculous like multiple orgasms or like i don't know just unrealistic stuff happening um but my impression of this was that it was like fairly act i mean i don't know i liked it <laughs> yeah i it doesn't like super stand out in my mind weirdly because like the rest of the fic does but like i think that's kind of good like the author didn't linger on the scene for too long and i felt like it was tasteful and also like you mentioned yeah there's plenty of times that you know authors who are not gay men try to write gay sex scenes between you know usually cis men but doesn't really matter and they get it wrong and this author didn't do anything that was wrong uh i but it's i've found that i sometimes like the scenes written by women better because they usually have a little more tenderness in them it's a little bit nicer sometimes so uh i mean that that's a generalization so that's not always true but my point is is that they this was sweet it was it had like the element of sexuality also that element of like them being cute so i think they did a pretty good job with it and i did like how that this was sort of preceded by the kiss and clark's apartment like the couple of nights before that where they do sort of like emotionally consummate some feelings there and it almost like takes the edge off and then it's like a slow burn like they're flirting throughout the uh the car ride and the baseball game and it's sort of like hot and sweaty and lex is a little bit sunburned and on the drive back to lex's place it's like oh we both know we're definitely going to bang <laughs> like to, <laughs> but so i feel like it was just well paced but yeah it wasn't like too long or ridiculous or like overdone or melodramatic um so they basically kind of mess around on the couch and then it kind of slows down and they have sex and i can't remember if they're having the conversation after like that they start to talk about like clark's what's actually really going on with clark which clark hasn't wanted to think about he hasn't talked to his parents about which is this whole losing his powers thing um is that pillow talk after i think so because i think they actually kind of gloss it right well there's a conversation kind of in between and there's also a conversation afterwards but i kind of forget which one's which um uh... 
Yeah, like they kind of gloss the actual like intercourse in the scene or whatever they do, but yeah, yeah, it's sort of um, it's in between. It's kind of in between the foreplay and the rest of the sex scene that yeah. they have that conversation I, about uh, Clark's powers. Yeah, and I just like the dialogue during like it's kind of flirty and fun and hot and like they're t- they're talking about um. The, oh, that Lex is going to buy Clark a new car because Clark's car has been wrecked. Right. And Lex is like, I'm going to buy you something Italian with lots of horsepower. And they're like kissing and whatever. And there's like Lex is like overcome a little bit. And he says something about crumple zones. Like it's just a ridiculous thing. But it's like super <laughs> fun. And um, yeah, I love that. And yeah, and then and then you get to them kind of talking about real stuff. But there is a sense that it's been a long time coming. But yeah, it's not overdone. I don't know how, like exactly why, if it's the amount of time or if it's physically what happens. There's a little bit of shadow to the scene, but it's not like totally fade to dark. But I like it, yeah. I remember the author mentioning one of her beta readers being like, you're not going to make Clark a virgin or anything, right? And she's like, I guess not. And so then she had to work out Clark's sexual history. But there's this thing right. where it's like, this is, not the f- this is implicitly not the first man that either of them has slept with either. Like, so you, you don't have to, mm-hmm. like, make it, you don't have to, like, manufacture the, like, kind of drama or the, like, tension about the scene. It's just about the two of them finally being able to come together after, like, all these years of, of not and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and I like it. The, the fans generally of the show interpret Lex as, like, sort of, like, flamingly bisexual. Like, he's such a sex, he has such sexual energy about him he's one of those characters that you're like oh he would seduce anything with like a heartbeat like the way that like rosenbaum walks and moves in a room and even though he's like a bald man which is not typically you know an attractive feat well it's not it's not like your stereotypical like thing that you'd say oh the sexy man he's definitely got to be bald like like hair is definitely (laughs) a an attractive feature but like somehow lex makes it work and mm-hmm. uh yeah so there's like there's always like memes and stuff on tumblr or whatever about lex's like big bisexual energy and he's just yeah so so it's easy in this sense to imagine that yeah he's knows what he's doing yeah there's that whole thread about how he got arrested for having public sex by going down on a another guy in the park so <laughs> yeah <laughs> when he was a lot younger which yeah. in the story was the inciting ins- incident that made his father ship him out to smallville for a while right which you know that's a good way to establish you know what's up and actually i was rereading the sex scene um it is clear what they do and i feel like i just got distracted by the fact that there's a scene where clark licks lex's bald head (laughs) and i just went like i i mean you know like okay it's not something that i'm aware of but sure yeah (laughs) Oh, I was going to say there's this minor through line that, that you see mostly in the author's notes of her trying to make Clark and his body and his sexuality and his experience just like when she has the room, she makes it a little bit different. She mentions like trying to work in a little synesthesia, that his blood tastes different, like all these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, she's working with a source material where Clark is alien, unquote, but but he's basically a human. But like the few times when she was able to kind of work in him reacting or experiencing things a little bit differently than a, you know, baseline human would. She seems to try to do that. So, you know, I I would 
I would buy that as just like a thing that it occurs to Clark to do as a Kryptonian. I don't know. Hey, you know, that's fair. And I don't know because I've never like been with someone who's completely bald or been completely bald myself. You're head sensitive, like, you know, scalp massages. It could be a thing. I'm fine with it. It was just, it's like something that never occurred to me. But what I do, um, oh man, I was totally going to say something else, but I'm still just really distracted by this whole licking people's heads thing. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. I I think it does have something to do with like that, yeah, sort of sensual, like synesthesia, like, and there's something about it, I think, that adds to sort of the intensity of the moment that like Clark's really taking in all the sights and smells and tastes and like whatever, like all, he's finally got Lex in front of him and he's just like... He wants it all. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I did, didn't remember what I was going to say. Is Speaking of the author trying to treat Clark's sexuality well, um, there's an author's note about, I forgot this, but apparently in the series, Clark's heat vision is linked to his libido, which, you know, the author points out is really problematic. Like, it's linking... The author says it's explicitly it's linking violence and sex, and it's also just kind of like making it so that Clark has to sort of be an asexual being. And I understand there are probably the showrunners are probably doing that, you know, to kind of like create this like teenage libido narrative, right? Like it's a sexual awakening. But I like that the author just that they pointed it out and that they just went like, no, I'm I'm not doing it that way because it's problematic. So. Yeah, I like I like that they I like that note too, and um, yeah, I remember that that episode is in season two, and it's called Heat. I think it's the second episode of the season, and I think you're right that the the writers just wanted something like sexy and kind of that would like teenagers would kind of identify with, like oh, like it's puberty, and you're literally right. you know, but it's like it <laughs> it it's just so funny because. The fans of the show called it like boner vision and it's like so it's so hysterical like Clark you know he's like he's like looking at Lana in the in the show you know and he's just like he literally like shoots these like it's like his I like joke that it's like eye ejaculation uh, <laughs> words. Um, but like these little like spurts of like heat like fire coming out of his eyes it's so hysterical um, and the oh, whole man. And there's this like whole I won't stay on it, but there's this whole thing where like Lex is being seduced by this woman who can control like pheromones and so the the entire episode, like the air conditioning out is everywhere, there's a heat wave, everyone is like sweaty and pink. Um and it's just really funny. But a lot of Clex fans like that episode because um you can kind of I mean, it's it's definitely Clark looking at Lana, but there's a lot of scenes where Lex is in there too and there and there's some kind of energy there and jealousy and um anyway it's it's funny but yeah i'm glad that this story kind of goes around that because i never really thought about that oh yeah that would be like a huge problem if like you know your sexual arousal can cause you to like kill someone like that's really disturbing it could really mess you up (laughs) yeah well after that sex scene there's not a whole lot left of the fanfic there's a little bit of wrapping up there's kind of it skips ahead enough in time maybe just like a week or something or two to show that, like, they've kind of settled into a sort of regular schedule or domesticity. And Clark gets, Clark is kind of willing to go to call his parents and talk to them again. Though notably, he does not say anything about his powers fluctuating or anything like that. He's still not kind of engaging with them in that part of his life. 
Um, but it sort of wraps up with like, hey, these two are together. That's great. And they're happy. Yeah, I like that before you get that phone call at the very end, it's like the one of my favorite, actually, and, and I might, if you guys are okay, I might like read a little section oh, of it because there's, it's like, uh, so yeah, they sleep together. Clark spends the night. The next morning, uh, the sun's coming up over Metropolis, and you get this really beautiful description of Metropolis in the morning. And, uh, and Clark's running home. Um, let's see, I'll just start here. Uh, he starts out slow, just a guy jogging home in yesterday's clothes, but the speed is still there, ready for him, and he uses it, zipping through a crowd of strutting pigeons that don't even register his presence until he's gone, practically flying across the 12th Street Bridge, too fast for human eyes to see. He still has this, and if he ever loses it, he'll remember this morning, remember the wind against his body, remember the blur of the rest of the world, remember what he had. But right now he's running. Running so fast he makes the metal grating on the bridge hum beneath him. Running so fast he leaves his fear and doubt behind him. Uh, and the commentary right under that is, Clark has gained Lex, so he's now a little closer to being able to accept the loss of his powers. So it's this like, kind of little triumphant like, morning after, like, even though you still have this mystery that's never solved about him losing his powers, he's like grown up a little bit and you know taken a little bit of control over this sort of relationship that he should never have lost or let go out of sort of out of his life. And so I really love that. And, and right after that, he goes to the planet and they kind of, they resolve the non-mystery that was the, uh, the terrorist thing. The guy just ends up, he had had a heart attack, I think, or something. And so that little red herring is finally gone. But um, I really like the Lois conversation that he has with her that, um, at their desk. You're right. He, I, I did skip over too much here. He sets some boundaries with Lois about her, like, kind of shoving into his life and being kind of rude and, and bossy with him. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, because she's been, like, yeah, harassing him, and he says, um, let's see, don't spy on me, don't ask me any question about Lex, and don't expect me to tolerate any of your mud flinging. She says, fine. And they kind of do that, and it's like, it seems kind of harsh, but I like that, you know, Clark's just kind of let her boss him around and sort of snap at them all. And uh, I think, like I said, I, I this could be flirting very close to, like, character bashing, but I don't think it ever gets there. And there there is that last bit I mentioned with Clark kind of calling her out on her relationship with Jimmy, like, basically being in the closet with Jimmy and not telling anyone about it. And um, there's a line I like that's... Um, uh, where was that before then? Let's see. Lois may love Jimmy, but she loves her job more. For Clark, it's more likely that his job would interfere with his relationship. But he had to put it into terms that Lois would understand. And there's a little... And then he says, Clark doesn't want to turn into Lois, who can't admit to the person she loves for fear of what people will think. Lois doesn't want to be seen as a part of a couple, as only half of some bigger whole. But Clark wants to be part of something lasting. He wants people to know. He also wants Lois to act like a human being, but that's a lot to ask. Still, he hasn't completely given up on her. Sometimes she just needs things spelled out. So I like that in that way he is criticizing Lois, but it also just shows like she's so independent and she's so into being the best reporter she can be that she's like sacrificing, sadly, this romance. Yeah, I thought I really like that line also because it, it makes you see where she's coming from. She's not hiding her relationship with Jimmy because she's ashamed of him. It's because 
in the context of of Daily Planet, she doesn't want to be the woman who's dating Jimmy or any like have anything to her identity other than the fact that she is a reporter who's working there. Um, yeah, I love and that. I also like, and I also like how we leave that last Lois scene where, you know, he's like, yeah, stop, stop attacking uh, Lex and you don't get to ask me questions about him unless I want to, whatever. She says, fine, Clark, I won't spy on you or ask you questions or even talk to you. Give me back my pencil sharpener. <laughs> Wait, can you two hear that loud noise outside my window? I, I can't. Okay, then I'll continue. Yeah. Lois sounds like a sulky child, and she'll break her own promise not to speak to him by noon at least. But hopefully the rest will hold. I like that characterization too, where like, yeah, she's going to be pissy about this, but also she's going to move past it because her energy is directed elsewhere, <laughs> other than being angry at Clark. Yeah, she's such a chaotic character that you, she won't stay in one place for very long. She'll find her next mystery to solve. Right. And then she'll probably, like, you know, pull out Clark being snappy at her earlier as a way to, like, you know, pressure him into coming along with her on some, like, stakeout mission or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I like that they it, they don't totally kill, like, the... like. There's a sense that Lois and Clark will be okay, and they'll they'll still keep being Lois and Clark, and it's not like the friendship is over or anything like that like they'll still be the sort of dynamic reporting duo that we love but yeah i think after uh, that it's just uh it's a nice they mentioned that uh she mentions that she bookends the story with yeah clark calling his parents which is how it opens with clark he's seeing the scar but he's also talking to his mother about kind of what's going on in the city and like the new bakery down the street or something like that and so it's bookended so it's like the same but everything's changed and um, yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice ending. I really liked it. Well, since that officially brings us to the end of the story, I think we can probably wrap up. Before we do favorite and least favorite things, is there anything from the story itself that we just like skipped over? We want to touch back on. I don't think so. I'm trying to. <laughs> We've covered this one fairly extensively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's more thorough than we do sometimes. And mm-hmm. mostly in order. Yeah, I think the Not only thing, little thing was like Clark does at some point kind of stop a mugging. So you do get the sense that Clark is saving oh, people yeah. here and there, but it's like fairy background. So that might be the only thing. Yeah. And it, the author's notes, she points out like Clark helps people when he can, but he's not organized about it. He's not Superman yet. He's mm-hmm. just like going about his life. And if there's something that his superpowers help with, he does, goes and helps with that. Yeah. There was some last author's note for when. Uh, after they sleep together and they're kind of talking about Clark's situation, there I think there was some author's note, unless she put it elsewhere, but about that she actually did have some ideas about why Clark is losing his powers, and it has to do with him leaving Smallville, where all that radioactive media rock is, and that in her mind, Lex is already starting to kind of solve this mystery. So there's an implication maybe, and I can't remember how explicit it is in the text versus just the author's notes. Um, but her, she did have an idea that maybe there would be a sequel or, but that Lex is already working on ways to help Clark, you know, get his powers back. So in that way, there is some resolution to that a little bit. That's interesting though, because in the text proper, it states that Clark feels better in Metropolis because there's not, you know, kryptonite everywhere. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a connection 
But I guess, you know, if we're moving into criticism, that's kind of mine, is I wanted to know what was going on here. Um, and I just don't know, and I just really want to know. And I don't even know if that's real criticism, I just, I want to know. <laughs> well, I think it could be, Tori, because it is kind of a thing about this fanfic. It's not just one secondary plot that basically goes nowhere, it's a couple of them. Clark losing his powers at least has thematic purpose throughout, up until that, you know, really cool paragraph that, um, that you read it for us, Sarah. Um, like, it's, it's got impacts on his relationships and all that. But, like, the subplot that Lois is, tries to be involved in, it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, the new character, what's her name, who, who Clark saved? Oh, Amanda. Amanda. Yeah. Amanda, she's around enough that it feels like maybe she has kind of a larger purpose in the story. She doesn't exactly. It's all these things that like don't exactly hurt the story, but there's several things that make it seem like there should be a sequel and there's no sequel. Like all these things that are kind of set up for something that then don't have a chance to go anywhere because the story is just this story. And I could definitely see that being a criticism. It, it bothered me a little bit too. Yeah, I think that's possibly part. I know this was her first story in the Smallville fandom, so part of it's her just kind of figuring out what she wants to do. I think part of that is a product of that exploratory writing where you get some like incredible things that you would never have found otherwise, but it is harder to pull everything back together in a way that's kind of, as peop, you know, as human beings, I don't know what it is about, is that we like a certain, not necessarily formula, but just like we like a certain... Like pacing has to feel right and a structure has to feel right. And so in order to like satisfy the the sort of instincts of a reader, like, oh, if you tease something, we want it resolved. Then you have to go back and like pull those threads together and sort of shape them in some way. So um, yeah, I think that's maybe a product of just like not quite doing that. I don't, you know, I don't know. It, it'd be interesting to feel like if that B plot with the environmental terrorist did go somewhere, how you would do that? Like, would you make it so that Lex was involved in the death? And would that be kind of like a something for Lex and Clark to sort of get over? And, and Clark would be conflicted that, oh no, Lex is up to his dark side again, but I love him. And, you know, but it, so it would be, it would make the story bigger. I kind of like the smallness of this story as far as scale goes, but I do, I agree that something about those like teases felt unresolved at the end. And it was kind of like, oh man, I, all right. I guess that's, I mean, it's sort of realistic that the guy died of natural causes, but there's something there that makes you wish, I don't know, it would have done something. Well, Sarah, would that be your complaint about the fanfic? Or is there something else that you think uh, it could have done better or that you weren't satisfied? Um. I mean, I, I would say if I had to pick out anything, yeah, I, like, I actually love this characterization of Lex. Like, he feels real to me. He feels grounded and authentic. But there is something to that dark side of Lex, again, that this author didn't really have the canon on because the show hadn't gotten there. And it does, like we said, reference it a little bit. But I almost would have liked a little bit more kind of inference of Lex having shady dealings or there being more of a darkness. Um, and maybe to do that, I would have minimized the character of Amanda, although she was she was so much fun. Uh, I liked her banter with Lois as well as Clark and Lex, but I think I would have wanted like 
something a little darker out of Lex. I think if I had to pick a criticism, maybe that would be it. All right. Well, I know for stories like this that we enjoyed a lot, trying to do criticism is the uncomfortable part. So let's um, let's relax a little bit and move on to our final praise. What did you like most about the fanfic or want to call out as being really good? I, I want to go first just because I actually do have one like super nitpicky criticism that I just wanted to bring up really quick, which is that Cars started mandating safety glass in 1937. And yet when Clark gets in the tries to get Amanda out of the car, the glass shards dig into his arm. And I just couldn't get over it. I was just like, I know that's super <laughs> nitpicky, but it was going to kill me if I didn't point it out. End of story. I mean, it's also important because, you know, he's, he's bleeding again. But that's so minor because this story is extremely well written and comes together. And like, you know, we're kind of criticizing the plot threads that go nowhere. But they almost are there to like add this depth to the universe where you get this like kind of neat slice of life between Clark and Lex. Like, it's weird how there's a couple of really beautiful lines, but also it's weird how much fun I had just reading about them at the baseball game. Like, basically nothing happens, but it's just really cute. Um, I do want to read, there's one line that I absolutely love and then I will end my praise, but I, we talked about the sea creature, Lex as the sea creature, and it's, the line is, the Bentley slips through the streets of Metropolis like an indulgent thief. The streetlights pour through the windshield, wash over Lex's bald head, make him seem like some exotic sea creature, phosphorescent in the deep. Clark has to look away. Um, and there's many lines that are just as pretty, so really impressive writing on the whole. Yeah, I agree. Like the the thing that drew me into this story was just the sheer quality of the writing. And yeah, it's like I agree, like those plot threads, it both bothers me and also serves the story in like the tone and the feel of it. Like it it feels so grounded and so real and life is not structured like a story like that so it almost like adds to this kind of feeling of like this is a real world that we could dip into and and you know get bossed around by lois and you know flirt with lex and you know it's, it's just like feels so real and um but yeah as like a writer myself like the language is amazing those lines that you read and there's like you said there's so many of them which is like there's some line that uh, Lex has the patience of a vengeful ice age or something like that. I remember that was great. Um, uh, I'm sure I could just flip. I could just flip through my little. I actually I love printing out stories. I don't know why. And just like there's all like I could always just like probably flip to some line that I have a, like a heart around. Um, Lex isn't dangerous because he'll find out Clark's secrets, but because Clark wants him to. Just little stuff, I don't know. So the language is smart and beautiful. And yeah, just the added bonus of that DVD commentary to me made the story the one that I wanted to talk about because it's just it's just such a unique thing to be able to get from the author's perspective, what she was thinking here, why this is this way, what's going on with these characters, what, what's with this toy fish, you know, all that stuff. So the experience of reading the story and then reading the commentary is really unique. And uh, I think it's uh, something that everybody should, should check out. Yeah, for sure. It's high praise, but I think the fanfic deserves it. It's very fun to read. Like the writing is just so strong. The characterization is just so thoughtful. 
Uh, I'm glad we did this one too. The other one that I was thinking of, I feel like we also would have had a lot to talk about, but it would have been very, very different things to talk about. Uh, Tori, that one was a later Smallville and DC Animated Universe crossover, which is not something we've yeah. been able to touch on mm. yet either. Or, or Fusion or something like that. <laughs> yeah, Manifest Destiny by Olivia Penn um, is the one you're talking about, and it's fantastic. And my one of my heroes, uh, Rivka T, that's her favorite Smallville story. So um, it's just high praise from, from a great author. Um, but Livia Penn did some great ones, but Manifest Destiny is super fun. Well, Sarah, maybe we can have you back on to talk about it sometime and get into the DC Animated Universe. Or maybe Jedi Academy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Dude, Jedi Apprentice, um, so, Jedi Apprentice, so funny. Me. Yeah, no, it's basically Jedi Academy. Like, it's like, it's so fun. Yeah, I would love, first of all, yes, I would love to come back on and talk about Manifest Destiny. Um, yeah, and just thinking about Jedi Apprentice makes me laugh because that's how I like discovered mm -hmm. Slash. I was like nine <laughs> years old and I like found the um, Jedi Apprentice fan dimension uh, archive site and it was all Qui-Gon Obi-Wan. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> like he's his father figure. Like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, <I never laughs> just like, oh, Sarah. Yeah, nine-year-old Sarah, cover your eyes. <laughs> it's okay. The Jedi would disapprove of any relationship, so you know it's yeah. all it's all equally oh, taboo. True. Star Wars, so silly. Well, thank you so much again for coming on this time, Sarah. This was a really fun fanfic to read and discuss, and you've been a great guest. Could you tell thank us you. a little bit where to find you online and what you do? Yes, so my, my AO3 handle is uh, one I made up when I was 15, uh, so it's a bit silly, but it's Story Shark 2005 and I just never changed it, so it's still that. That's a great one. That's nothing yeah. to be ashamed of. I, I think I was like, there's almost like a little part of me that's like, was I thinking about Street Sharks? You remember that old show? Like, these... Uh, but in my head, I was like, oh, I'm surfing through the fan fiction, just like a shark is surfing through the waves. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's 2005, so I'll just throw that on there. Um, but inevitably, people think I'm like a 15-year-old teenager. Um, mm. So it's pretty silly. But yes, that's my AO3 tag. And uh, I do also go by Talk and Fanfic. I have a little interview podcast um, where it's usually just me and an author talking about their stuff. So um, yeah. A fanfic author, specifically, things. right? Let's. Let's try to sell it here. Yes, sorry. Yes, not a. It's a great <laughs> podcast. I do like an episode every couple of months because I have a really bad lazy streak. But when I do the episodes, I really enjoy them. I've had a couple. Like I said, I had X Parrot and Rivka T on their Smallville authors, and they're awesome. But it really started out as a Cobra Kai show because I was obsessed, and I'm still into the Cobra Kai fandom. But. Um, the first season is really all Cobra Kai authors and discussion. Um, and the season four is coming out at some point next year and the show's up for, I think, four Emmys. So it's very exciting to be a Cobra Kai fan. But anyway, yeah, talk and fanfic, T A L K I and apostrophe fanfic. So yeah, come check it out. We'll provide a link to it on the show notes as well. And speaking of show notes, I think I'm going to lead us out here with all the many things that I say each time. For one thing, this was episode 117 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, Interstitial, a Smallville fanfic by Punk. Just Punk, the original Punk, the punkiest fanfiction writing Punk, I assume. Uh, you can find 
and it's on AO3, and we'll put a link there. Also on AO3 is the author's commentary and a few prequels to this fanfic, which are both conveniently, you know, linked as part of like a series like you can do on AO3. I think there's a podfic also, but um, you have to sign into AO3 to get access to it. And I just couldn't bother to remember our AO3 password to pull that up. Uh, but if you're on AO3, you can find that as well. I'm sure it's delightful. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Our podcast is edited by Dom Davis, who I assume will be very happy because, Sarah, you have such a nice podcasting setup with clear audio and good internet connection and nothing went wrong this time, which at this point is a little bit unusual for the past couple months. Something's been going wrong. You can find our podcast at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com. That's the website, or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. You can also use whatever podcast service you're using. Probably we're there. Podbean is kind of the, the home base for us. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, contact us on Twitter at retrofanfic, Facebook at retrofanfic. Uh, send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. Any of those are good. We have a Discord channel as well, which we'll provide a link to on the show notes. If there's anything you want to talk about with our show in particular, there's other channels on the Discord as well. But if you've got any questions, suggestions, comments about our episodes, that's also a good place to bring them. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. And I'm Sarah. We're just three Earth life forms, as far as the public at large is aware, trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care. Oh, I love it. All right. I love the outro too. I need to figure out an outro. <laughs> I don't have one. I'm just like, well, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> like I always just sort of trail off. Ours is a little bit long, but. Oh man, thank you guys so much. That works though. Yeah. Don't think uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun. Thank you. Yeah.